0: It's daily thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I'm giving this message on July 4th, and it's a little tricky, you know, because you would say that I should make this America-themed. It's a little hard when you're walking through World War I and America hasn't quite got their game on yet uh, in the story. Uh, that'll happen, but... It's interesting because I would say this message is a very patriotic message. Uh, It is, but in a very different way. And it was not originally in my outline uh, for what I was going to cover, and yet I felt like if I was going to do it, I had to do it now. The response that I've received back on underestimating Albert, uh, the message I gave on King Albert, uh, has been very high. I, I, would say, I did a. I don't know if you guys saw on Saturday of this week, I had a bonus session that came out, which was feedback from people around the world in regards to the World War I series. And underestimating Albert got a lot of uh, commentary on it. Uh, there's something about this guy, I think, that intrigues us. And it, I think it also catches us off guard because some of us had never heard of him. And it's like, how could someone at that level of quality not be known. Uh, And that's sort of a shocker to us too, especially when you find out that he's been described as a combination between Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt. It's like, okay, and where has this guy been my whole life? Uh, And just a very, very unique man. And so there's a lot more to his story, and I'm going to take another slice out of it in World War I that I think is worthy of reflection. And even though this wasn't originally in the, the flow, I do think it fits well right here. And uh, so this is called The Daring Decisions of Albert. So I have a different picture of Albert. This is with, you know, he's in his, uh, his war uniform, his soldier outfit, as opposed to his kingly garb, because that's a pretty good picture of who he is. Uh, and uh, he's known as the last warrior king. Of course, then you you have these pictures of Zelensky in the trenches, and you have to say, well, maybe second to last. Uh, and so it's an unusual thing when you begin to see a ruler of a nation enter into a war situation. This guy really was in the trenches. It's it's pretty spectacular. Robert Cowley, uh, he, he wrote an article uh, called Albert and the Iser. I think that's... I actually looked up this. I can't say it in the French sort of way, but it's like zer. It has like some, something like that going on in it. But I have to say it a lot in this message, so I, I figured I might as well look this one up and see if I can at least get somewhat close. But a great article, if you ever want to look it up. Uh, and he says this, of all the presidents, prime ministers, and emperors who presided over the Great War... Albert was the only one who actually commanded his army, even to overseen its day-to-day operations. He was also the only one who regularly showed up in frontline trenches. Just a unique, I mean, even if that was all that we said, it'd be very impressive. And I mean, just to imagine a king or an emperor in the trenches where the bombs are going off, it's like, that's unheard of. It's just not the way it works. That army was, to be sure, small, but its symbolic importance was far out of proportion to its size, and the tiny stretch of line it held, about 4% of the Allied side of the Western Front, Belgium and its violated neutrality provided the Allies with the ready-made patina of morality the war otherwise lacked. And Albert, the man who chose against all odds to resist the Hun, remember that's the Germans, approached Crusaderhood as nearly as anyone, he became, despite himself, the world's last warrior king. So we're going to go back in time a little, and we're going to go to a royal dinner where the Germans are hosting the Belgian leadership. And so they've, they've asked Albert. Remember, they're trying to get their finger on the pulse of this man. This man is a quiet man. He doesn't say much. And that which is before Albert, uh, Leopold, uh, was not a pleasant man. Uh, He was a barbaric man who had a price tag on him, and the Germans knew it. They knew that Leopold was purchasable for a price, for the right price. And so since their Schlieffen plan to start out World War I had to swing like a sledgehammer through Belgium, and that was their entire plan. It had to go through Belgium. Belgium. That was the only way to make it work. They needed to know that the king of the Belgians, Was going to be purchasable. The problem is Leopold passed away in 1909, and now we're 1914, and Albert I has risen to the throne. But they don't really know Albert. They're just sort of presuming he must be of the lineage of Leopold, which is, of course, what underestimating Albert was all about. So they're going to invite him to dinner. Uh, And so we're in November of 1913. It's going to be August. Well, the. uh, Gavrilo Princip's gunshot in Sarajevo killing the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is June 28th. And then you're going to see the declaration of war on Serbia by Austria-Hungary on July 28th. And then you're gonna see the mobilization and August 2nd is when they're going to give the ultimatum to Belgium, which was not expected. It's like, are you serious? You want us to let you pass through? Uh, we're a neutral country, you, you can't do that. Otherwise, we're siding with you by allowing you through. And so that's where you're going to start to see the conflict happen. August 4th is when the neutrality of Belgium is going to be violated and the Germans began marching in. So this is November of the year before. And this is Barbara Tuckman. she says, in November 1913, King Albert was invited to Berlin as his uncle had been nine years before. The Kaiser gave him a royal dinner at a table covered with violets and set for 55 guests, among them Secretary of War General Falkenhayn Secretary of the Imperial Navy, Admiral Tirpitz, Chief of Staff, General Moltke, and Chancellor Ber- Bethmann Holwig, all important characters in World War I. The Belgian ambassador, Baron Bayens, who was also present, noticed that the king sat through dinner looking unusually grave. After dinner, Bayens watched him in conversation with Moltke and saw Albert's face growing darker and more somber as he listened. On leaving, he said to Bayens, "'Come tomorrow at nine, I must talk to you.'" In the morning, he, that's Albert, walked with Bayens through the Brandenburg Gate past the rows of glaring white marble, um, <clears throat> uh, big word in German, in heroic postures, mercifully shrouded by the morning mist to the tier garden where they could talk undisturbed. At a court ball early in his visit, Albert said he had received his first shock when the Kaiser pointed out to him a general, it was von Kluck as the man designated to lead the march on Paris. So von Kluck is going to be the one at the very edge of the sledgehammer. So that's, that's going to be the one to ultimately capture Paris. And so back in November of, November of, November of 1913, that's what he's going to point out, as the man designated to lead the march on Paris. Then prior to dinner the evening before, the Kaiser That's William II, by the way. Hopefully, we're all staying up with with that. William II, taking him aside for a personal talk, had poured forth a hysterical tirade against France. He said, France never ceased provoking him. As a result of her attitude, war with France was not only inevitable, it was near at hand. The French press treated Germany with malice. The three-year law was a deliberately hostile act, and all France was moved by an unquenchable thirst for revanche. It's true. Trying to stem the flow, Albert said he knew the French better. He visited France every year, and he could assure the Kaiser they were not aggressive, but sincerely desired peace. In vain, the Kaiser kept insisting war was inevitable. After dinner, Moltke took up the refrain. War with France was coming. This time, we must make an end of it. Your Majesty cannot imagine the irresistible enthusiasm which will permeate Germany on der Tag, on the day. The German army was invincible. Nothing could stand up to the fur Teuton, Teutonicus. Terrible destruction would mark its path. Its victory could not be in doubt. Troubled by what motivated these startling confidences as much as by their content, Albert could only conclude they were intended to frighten Belgium into coming to terms. Evidently, the Germans had made up their minds and he felt that France should be warned. He instructed by to repeat everything to Jules Cambon the French ambassador in Berlin, and to charge him to report the matter to President Poincaré in the strongest terms. So what you see is you already see decisions being made inside of Albert. Albert is seeing something. He's seeing a dark cloud uh, that is emerging out of Germany, and he recognizes what it's trying to do. It's trying to cow him into, whether it's submission, uh, subservience, to say they're coming and it's going to be dreadful. And he has hunches. You know, He knows the quickest way to Paris is going to be through his roads. And this isn't sounding good. So he is going to actually make a decision to warn the French of this. This private conversation, he's going to make a decision. And the main thing, remember, I called this the daring decisions of Albert. Albert is going to make decisions that are very, very difficult. In our life as believers, we have a decision-making response, responsibility. We need to actually carry this thing known as integrity all the way through this battle, and we need to make decisions that are very challenging at times. And you're going to see Alberts being in a position to make some rather, what we would say, impossible ones. The first decision is August 2nd, now, this is a quote I gave before and I figured I needed to find a way to get it back in because it's such a great quote. This is the fam- famous Belgian response when Germany basically gives the ultimatum, let us through. Let us through. We don't want to harm you, but you need to let us through. And you know, with that sort of dark hint, it's like, and if you don't, just, just know we are 10 times your strength just in manpower, 1,000 times your strength in artillery. So you choose. If we are to be crushed let us be crushed gloriously. Just stirring. It's an incredible thought to think that, you know, as a believer, if we're going to actually be crushed, let's be crushed gloriously. And here's the quote from Alfred. Uh, Alfred. Uh, I gave a series called uh, Spiritual Lessons from Alfred the Great. So if, it's funny because there's so many similarities between Alfred and Albert. But this is Albert. Uh, in, on August 2nd, he says, Our answer must be no whatever the consequences, our duty is to defend our territorial integrity. In this, we must not fail. So the first thing he's going to do, and it's a decision that is so shocking to the Germans, because Leopold, you have to recognize, the difference between Leopold and Albert is so stark in this situation, because Leopold only concerns himself with him and his territory because it benefits him. Albert is going to do something to benefit his country that actually hurts his country. Because to preserve his country, he needs to hinder the Germans. So he's going to actually start by blowing up the bridges and the roads. He is going to, in a sense, destroy his own country to save his country. Which is a fascinating statement, if you were to think about it, just in the biblical construct of how our lives work. When we're like, God, why? Why did I have a bridge blow up in my life? Because the enemy is going to try and transfer his goods through it, and I am interested in saving this territory. In other words, God is in the business of rescue. And just like you see with Albert, if you didn't understand that there was a war on, you could say, what is our king doing? Blowing up our bridges. This is a massive endeavor. In other words, he is harming his own country to save his own country. So blowing up the bridges, not quite what the Germans expected from a Belgian king. If all you're used to is Leopold, you could understand why this doesn't fit. This isn't the grid that they are used to reasoning from. So King Albert I of Belgium said, Belgium said this. Now this is just you know, when, when uh, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, or William II, makes his uh, final appeal and sort of like, hey, and you don't want to be hurt, do you? And William has such a, uh, a demeaning tone, like such an arrogance in everything he says. And it's just like, William, William, we could do this better. You, you need some help in your diplomacy. You know, I, I want to write some speeches for him. Just sort of help him communicate with Albert a little better because he's going to blow it right here. And you're going to see Albert for the only time, one of the only times anyone has ever seen him actually get mad right here. And he's going to say, what does he take me for? And that is the statement in the first time we brought up that quote. That is a Christian right there. If the enemy wants to use your roads, he wants to pass through your life, but does he realize that you have exchanged your life with Christ? That you are no longer a servant, a slave of the kingdom of darkness, but you are now a part of the kingdom of light. What does he take me for? Does he actually think I'm still subservient to the powers of the flesh? What does he take me for? You see, as a believer... We need to recognize that we are no longer under the thumb of Leopold. This isn't who we are. We're a new creature in Christ. And the way we handle this territory is different now. The royal ride through Brussels. Every nation had its motivation. Belgium had Albert. This is so interesting. I've already gone through that every nation at this time sort of has their motivation. Like, for instance, Germany. What's what's it? Well, respect. Respect come on, give us respect. We're being encircled. No one seems to show us the honor that is due the German race. And if you have uh, the the French, which we've gone through, revanchism, they want revenge. They want Alsace and Lorraine back. This is their motivation. And so each nation sort of has this motivation, right? And if we go into, you know, Russia and Austria, Hungary, Serbia, they all have something that's motivated. But what a unique statement What was Belgium's Belgium's motivation? What, What was it? It was Albert. Albert was a, I mean, you have a man that literally becomes the inspiration for the nation. How he responds causes everyone else to go, yeah, like that. Just in and of itself, that is such a profound statement of how Christianity works. We see Jesus, who's our inspiration? Is our inspiration, you know, this, this, we want to get territory back, we want political gain, we want our our conservative president on the throne. What is our motivation? It's to gain back what we lost, to be respected in this world. Our, Our motivation is Jesus, and this nation has a man for a motivation. Isn't that just an intriguing thought? Listen to this quote, Britain had no Albert and no Alsace. In other words, Britain was struggling to get into the war because it didn't have a clear motivation. And that statement says so much in it. It didn't have an Alsace, and it didn't have an Albert. What are we following? What are we doing this for? The nation was divided. Do we have to come to the support of France? I mean, why are we doing this? That's just a handshake deal. And so that statement just in and of itself says a lot about Belgium and about Albert. Barbara Tuckman says this in Brussels. One hour after the invasion begins, were August 4th. King Albert, in unadorned field uniform, rode to meet his parliament. At a brisk trot, the little procession came down the Rue Royale, led by an open carriage in which were the Queen and her three children, followed by two more carriages, and bringing up the rear, the King alone on horseback. Houses along the way were decked with flags and flowers, and exalted people filled the streets. Strangers shook each other's hands, laughing and crying. Each man feeling, as one recalled, united to his fellow by a common bond of love and hate. Wave on wave of cheers reached out to the king as if the people in one universal emotion were trying to say he was the symbol of their country and of their will to uphold its independence. Even the Austrian minister. Now remember, Hungary, Austria-Hungary is on the opposite side. Okay, And this is their diplomat in Belgium at the time, in Brussels, Belgium at the time, even the Austrian minister who had somehow forgotten to absent himself and with other diplomats was watching the procession from his parliament windows, was wiping tears from his eyes. (laughs) That's That's a very unique statement. Even he can recognize the profound movement of what this man is doing for his country. We will not bend. We will not give up our territory. But Albert, you do realize that Germany is unstoppable. We will not bend. We will not compromise. And what that is going to do to this people is very similar to what's going to happen in Great Britain with Winston Churchill in World War II. When he gives his famous speech, and you're going to see things like Dunkirk begin to unfurl. You're going to see a nation rise up that was literally chewing its nails the day before. And suddenly they have this confidence that they can win. And that is an extraordinary thing when it happens. Inside the hall, after members, visitors, and the queen and the court were seated, the king came in alone, tossed his cap and gloves onto the lectern in a businesslike gesture, and began to speak in a voice only faintly unsteady. When recalling the Congress of 1830 that created an independent Belgium, he asked, Gentlemen, are you unalterably decided to maintain intact the sacred gift of our forefathers? The deputies, unable to control themselves, stood up with shouts of, I think this is we, but we, we, we. So it's like everyone is united. He is inspiring them. Are we ready to lay down our lives? Are we ready to do whatever it takes to defend this territory. There occurred in Belgium one of the rare appearances of the hero in history. Belgium was lifted above herself by the uncomplicated conscience of her king and faced with the choice of acquiescence or resist, took less than three hours to make her decision knowing it might be mortal. In other words, they have 12 hours. It took less than three for all of them to get together and say, we know what to do. We know what is right. But who is leading that? It's the king. The king starts with an almost instant type of response. No, is our answer. And the rest of the nation who may have been willing to be cowed suddenly esteems that as their decision. And they see the nobility in it and they want to rise up to it. The biblical doctrine of yes God really, really likes to dish out yeses. Now, the audience right in front of me, almost all of you were in a session this past week, or maybe it was, I don't know when it was. could have been two weeks ago. But uh, the two-sided ticket, I think it was Wednesday, wasn't it? And where we talked about this principle of yeses and noes. And I'm going to touch on that again because that plays into what we're going to see in this storyline. We are going to see a process that this leader is going to go through to make his decisions. And I'm going to say it's very, very impressive. He is going to make decisions that are very hard on himself, but are going to preserve that which is true. And so in the Bible, we have this idea of God saying yes. You know, when you knock, doors open. When you seek, you find. And there is a process that God is going to equip us and train us in, in our understanding as believers, that when you go after God, he is found. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. A simple way of saying it is God says yes. Now, when you come to that conclusion that God says yes, it would seem a little strange to say that God also says no. It's like, whoa, 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 stop right there, Eric. If God's going to say yes, he needs to say yes. You, you see, that's where my, my feet can stand firm upon rock if I know that God is going to say yes. However, the basis for you to stand firm upon rock is actually God's character, his nature, which is unmoved. You see, God is going to say yes because he's a yes-saying God. However, to be able to say yes, he sometimes has to say no. Now, I know that that sounds really funny. Of course, those of you that went through the message, the two-sided ticket, are like, I get that now. Okay, that makes total sense. However, just don't you feel for the people that are getting this via podcast? And they're like, what? What did Eric just say? In other words, to preserve his yeses and to be able to say yes as he intends to say yes, he actually has to say no. So let's at least dive into that a bit. We know that God really, really likes to dish out yeses. So Matthew seven seven. This is just a sampling because there's a lot of scriptures that say basically the exact same thing. Ask and it shall be given you. Ask. Just, just ask. My answer is yes. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, he's a good father. And so if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone, right? I mean, what? hey, well, he's a good father. So we get this idea that he says yes. And so there's just a smattering of nine other scriptures that support and say the exact same thing. God says yes. Can God say no? You see, at first blush, it seems like if a God that promises to say yes is going to say yes, then he could not say no. But actually, a no is not the opposite of a yes. It's what enables a yes. In other words, I'm saying yes to being here this morning to talking to you, to being here, you know, to doing this uh, podcast, to, it's a yes that I had to give to this. And yet, when I say yes to this, imagine if someone came up to me or said, hey, Eric, could you have breakfast this morning? And uh, maybe we could get together. And, you know, Eric likes to say yes, and he's a nice guy, and he likes to hang out with other believers, and he likes to encourage them, right? And yet, for me to preserve this yes, I would have to say no to that. In other words, I have limited yeses, and so I want to spend them well. And to be able to ensure my yeses, I have to dish out no's to be able to preserve those yeses. You see, to be able to give a yes, you have to be able to know how to dish out no's. But it's not a rude no. It's not a slap across the face sort of no. It's a no because I want to give a greater yes. So can God say no? Well, he did say no. Look at this. Moses prayed that he might enter the land of Canaan, but God denied him and instead led him to Mount Pisgah. And by the way, Mount Pisgah isn't quite as exciting as going into the land of promise, the one that flows with milk and honey. Remember that? That he's been laboring for 40 years with this uh, cranky people to get them there. And then right before they're going to go, he needs to die. It's like, God, thank you. That's just wonderful. You see, he's saying no to Moses' request Why? Well, Moses is symbolic of something. He's symbolic of the law. And if there's one thing the Bible's clear on, the law can't bring you into the land of promise. It needs to be the second man, the one that comes after the law. His name is Joshua in the story, which is also the same name, Yeshua, as Jesus. Jesus is the one who can lead us into the land flown with milk and honey. And Moses can't. That does not mean that Moses' request is lost on God, and that's why it's so amazing when you see the Mount of Transfiguration, and you see in the land of promise, Moses getting a front row seat of the transfigured Christ. It's just like, I had to give you a no, for all the story of the gospel has to be kept intact, and because I love you, Moses, and I wanted to save it just for this. Front row seat, seeing the transfigured Christ, the fulfillment of all righteousness, not bad guys. You have to admit. How about this? The the man from the Gadarenes, remember him? The man set free by Jesus and he requested to go with Jesus. I mean, that's a good request. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. He said no to some guy who wants to come follow him. What? That doesn't make sense. You see, God knows the purpose we have. And that purpose will be fulfilled. And he loves the desire that we have. I'm sure he loves the fact that this guy wants to follow him. However, he knows what this guy is designed for. Paul intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit it. And instead he heard in a dream the cries of the man from Macedonia saying, Come over and help us. Paul's intending to go into Bithynia to share the gospel. And God's going to say, No. Instead, I have something different for you in Macedonia. You see, to preserve the Macedonia call, he needs to say no to the Bithynia call. And this is how God works. He is saying yes. What is he saying yes to? Paul has a desire to share the gospel with the Gentiles. He has a desire to go into all the world and preach it. God, I'm burning up inside. I need to share this. Could I go into Bithynia? No. What? Go to Macedonia. Oh, okay. It fulfills it in even a greater way. The gospel is unfurled in and through our lives when we recognize that God will dish out a no so that he can fulfill the greater yes. And of course, Jesus in the garden physically yearned to have this cup passed, but he submitted to the will of the Spirit leading him to the cross. God says no to Jesus being excused from this suffering. Because God is accomplishing something very, very important that He is saying yes to. Courageously wielding the no as the primary means of preserving a yes. So, one of the illustrations I used during the two sided ticket, which is just hard to beat, is the fact that Corey Tenboom asked God not to go into Germany. She was suffering in a prison in Holland because of her, of her aid for the Jews uh, during World War II, and the Nazi, uh, the Nazi uh, occupation of Holland had led to her arrest, and then she got into a cattle car and was packed in with all these women, and she's just reiterating her prayer over and over again, Lord, not Germany, Lord, not Germany, and then suddenly she crosses the border from Holland into Germany, And you could even feel the darkness, the spiritual oppression, even as you're crossing the border. She asked a very specific request of God. And doesn't God promise to say yes? And her explanation for that is very, very important for me, I think, to finally get a grip on this in my own life. And she said, the way that God instructed her in this is that he was saying yes. Even though he has to say no to the fact of not Germany he is saying yes to another prayer. It's a prayer that happened before that where she said, Lord, take me anywhere you want in this world. Do with me whatever you see fit to bring glory to your name. He says, Corey, I'm saying yes to that prayer. And to be able to say yes to that prayer, which is superior to your little prayer here, I need to say no to this because God is frying bigger fish. He is accomplishing something bigger in and through her life. And any of you that have ever read uh, one of her books or heard her testimony know the impact that comes because she went across that border. God used her in probably many of our lives, if not all of our lives in here, because she went across that border. She was used to proclaim the gospel. Courageously wielding the no as the primary means of preserving a yes. So as I said to you guys uh, whatever that was last Wednesday, I say no a lot, but it's not a rude no. It's a no that preserves my yeses. So the key is for each of us as believers to know our yeses. We have to know what is primary of importance in our life. For instance, my walk with God, my relationship with God, my time with God is a yes in my life. In other words, out of all of my life, if I need to say no to preserve something, that's what I'm going to preserve. God's also given me a spouse. And being married to Leslie means I need to supply yes in that direction. And so I have a God relationship, I have a spousal relationship, and I have children that have been entrusted to me as well. And those are yes positions in my life, and I need to preserve those yeses, which means to preserve those yeses, I oftentimes have to dish out no's to other things as we progress down this list. In other words, I have a church, I have a ministry, I have a staff that I need to care for and lead, and these are yeses in my life. I have students that are here currently. I have a congregation that is here. And I need to have a yes for that. However, there's times in ministry where if God needs me, I need to say no to something else down the list. I need to make sure that I have my priorities clear in agreement with God's word, so that I am ready to give a no when I need to. And I gave the illustration of, Leslie can get in touch with me at any time. If she wanted to get in touch with me right now, she'd probably get in touch with Hudson or maybe it'd be Nathan or Sandy and just be like, could you tell Eric I need him to call me right now? And one of them would awkwardly make their way up to the front in the middle of the Daily Thunder session, And give me a note usually is how it reads. I've gotten this from Sandy quite a bit. And it's like, Leslie needs a call or something to to that degree. And I will immediately stop what I'm doing, even if it's in a film process, because Leslie knows that I'm doing this right now, right? If she needs me, she needs me. And that is a yes that I would have, which could look like a, a very rude no to all of you. When in actuality, you're seeing the discipling of Christ even in me doing that. And so for us to know our yeses becomes very, very important. In this story, Albert must know his yeses. What matters the most? Because he's gonna have a lot of pressure around him for how to use his strength. He has a military, he has territory, he has roads, he has bridges. He needs to make decisions because he has international pressures all around him that are telling him what he needs to do. He's just little, small Belgium. So he's not the one that should be making the decisions, right? And he's like, I'm responsible as king of this country. I will make decisions in alignment with that priority. I mean, it's very impressive. He's not thinking about himself. If he was thinking about himself, he would have taken, what was it, the equivalent of what we said, like a billion dollars uh, gold, uh, pounds sterling. I mean, that, that, would be a, that would have been wise, don't you think if he could have been bought off, that's a pretty good price tag. Imagine what you could do with a billion dollars. Yeah, Your conscience might not let you live very well with it for the rest of your life. However, that's how most people go, but you are not like most people. What does he take me for? I have transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the dear son. I am no longer about self. I am now about Christ. And if that is true, you need to know how to deal with your yeses, which are very limited in your life. You have just one shot at this thing called life. You have limited hours in each day, and you need to spend your yes as well. You want to be like God, one who says yes, says yes to that which is in agreement with the will of God. And when the will of God knocks, when it seeks, it finds. When it asks, it receives. This is how the will of God works with us, because we are like that nature of God, which is ready and disposed to say yes. And when the will of God asks for bread, we do not give it a stone. In other words, we give our best, and that's what you're going to see in this story. It's truly a remarkable story. that sort of fits the July 4th flair, you know, of protecting your country, standing up for what is right and patriotic and all that it fits. So these are four illustrations uh, of a higher version of a yes. In other words, that you have to give a no to so that you can give the higher version of a yes. So the no that is given in order that a yes might be supplied, a yes to something that is exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, because many of us just, we ask and think very low. And God desires to do things exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Here's an illustration. Israel cries for a deliverance from the Romans. I mean, they know their Messiah is coming. And they've also tied their Messiah to being a military deliverer. And when he comes, he's going to eradicate the Romans. And yet what Jesus is going to do is so much bigger than that. They would have been fine if their Messiah came and just eradicated the Romans. Lord, please come. Take away the Roman Empire. Get us out from under their boots. It's a good prayer right? However, it's a smallish prayer and God's going to say no. What? Isn't he a God that says yes? I am saying yes to something much bigger. I'm delivering you from a greater power, from the power of sin and death. You've been enslaved and I'm setting you free. I'm giving you life for all eternity. You know what? You have to admit that's very impressive. That's a pretty good yes. Here's a different kind of no. We'll call it the second one. The no that is given in order that a yes might be declared to a superior request. Joseph, uh, as he's in prison, and he's making the request, Lord, remind the cupbearer of, of, of the fact that I interpreted his dream. I, I should have some favor here. I'm, this is an unjust sentence that I have. I mean, Potiphar's wife was a liar. I shouldn't be here. And yet, it what appears to be a no Is God answering a superior request? God wants to build this man into a world changer, not just get him out of prison. And in the fullness of time, God is going to do it, but it's going to be translated as a no for quite a a long period of time. And there can be seasons in your life where it can appear that God is saying no when in actuality, he's setting you up for the yes. Number three, the no that is given in order that a greater love might be expressed. You see, that cup is not going to pass from Christ because God has a greater love that he wants to express in and through Christ's sacrifice. No, my son, I need you to bear this cross. Number four, the no that is given in order that a greater glory might be revealed. Lazarus is an amazing story of that. It's, you could imagine Mary and Martha is like, could you heal him? And Jesus is going to, in a sense, say No even though he's going to be saying yes in the long run, right? But the way that he is going to in go through the process sure, sure does look like a no, doesn't it? And there are things in our life as believers that look like no's. But we need to trust that God is bigger. He is going exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. So Albert is honored as the hero. He is. He's honored... As the hero, he's helped out Zero. Okay, It's it's not just me trying to be uh, really bad with poetry. It's just me trying to stick it onto one screen as a title. He was honored because everyone in the world is going to see this. The French are right there with all the troops to come alongside of Albert and help him. However, they won't spend their troops to go up into Belgium to help Albert. Why? Because they need to get Alsace-Lorraine. That's their plan, Plan 17, and they can't veer from the plan. They need to think of their own interests right now. That's what France is doing, and here's what France says. When we're done here, then we'll bring help to you. Meanwhile, don't engage with the Germans because you're going to lose, so we just want you to sort of hold off, and Albert's like, you've got to be kidding me. There is no way I'm not going to engage in battle right now. I need to protect my country. And so this very unique thing where he has French pressure to sort of set down his, you know, to, to sort of neutralize and hold off and find a little hiding spot for a while and then join French forces. So Liège has conferred the Grand Cross of the Legion of Honor and Albert the Military Medal. Those are very high honors from France. And this is the same time this is all happening because France isn't sending troops, they're sending honors. That's what they do. That's their, because their conscience is guilty. They know that they should be doing something, but they can't veer off of their revanchism. The reason for getting in this war isn't to help Albert, even though it should be. <laughs> That's technically why they should be engaging in this war. I don't know if you've thought that through, but technically it's the violation of the neutrality of Belgium that should be getting them in this war. And yet, instead, what are they doing? They're swinging into Alsace-Lorraine, trying to take back their territory. And as a result, they don't have the military strength to help Albert yet. So Albert is on his own. But he's going to get the military medal. I mean, that's, that's really something. Don't you feel good for him there? So this is his wife, and we're going to skip forward in time. This is the reason this is a hard message to give, because I'm going to skip forward past some very, very important events that you don't know about, and it's fine. I'm just going to act like they don't exist, okay, for a second. And we're still in Belgium, okay? We're still in this process of the Germans trying to come through and take this territory and control it. And the Belgians have been nasty creatures to deal with. And the Germans have really struggled. In fact, the the Belgians uh, historically are going to show one of the greatest... Pound for pound fights that any little nation has ever shown in history. His wife, remember, she's going to function as a nurse in this war, Elizabeth, Queen of Belgium. She says in her journal, Situation very bad. Everything seems black to Albert. These are hard moments to be in, and decision making in those difficult moments, it is important to remember what is true and to not move by emotion in those moments. The next day is going to be a crucial day in Belgium history, Belgian history. It's really hard to figure out when to use Belgium and when to use Belgian. Albert's daring decisions. So I'm going to go through a list of four key decisions that he is going to have. First off, we know of to stand against Germany outnumbered 10 to 1, and that's just manpower. Military power, it's way beyond 10 to 1 odds. But just manpower, going through Belgium, we have 10 to 1. Number two, to blow up the bridges and to destroy the roads of Belgium. Did you know that he didn't even hesitate in making that decision? Blow them up, is what he says. He probably said it a little more calmly than that. Blow them up. He probably said it with a little sort of Belgium-French accent, too. So I can't do that, but you can imagine it at least. Number three, to continue to fight instead of wait for the assistance of the French to preserve his nation first, even if it means he is lost, stranded, or worse. In other words, to keep fighting when he has no international help against the most powerful military, what many people would say was the greatest military force ever to march out to battle in all of world history up to that moment, was the German army of 1914. And who is standing against it? Belgium. Basically, King Albert. It's like the will of one man... Define this machine that is coming in. Truly remarkable, guys. And then uh, I don't want to give much away, similar a spoiler alert, to blow up the dikes of the Izere. Izere. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think I'm supposed to trill the R. Uh, Izere. Is, no, that's still not right. It's something like that, okay? I even put it on the screen to help myself in this moment, but I don't know that it's working. Here is this is October 15th. Albert says this the line of the Yser constitutes our last line of defense in Belgium this line will be held at all costs so Albert and his troops are beleaguered there's hardly any army left they have stood against this machine now for multiple months and they are backed up towards Antwerp if you know uh, Belgium and they're right near Dunkirk is just south of them, which is sort of the miracle of Dunkirk from World War II. And so they're up in the Yser. It's like a little stream. It's not even that big of a uh, stream. So even you could probably walk across it up to your knees. In other words, it's not that, that big of a deal, right? And so they're backed up behind that. So well, here's our map. Uh, and if you zoom in, you see Belgium right there, just between France and Germany. Belge is what it says on our map. And I'm going to put a star up right on the coastline where we would be right now. So they're backed up into a corner. They're up near Antwerp. They, Albert will not give up Antwerp. He will not give up this territory. He's, he's willing to stand. He's willing to die, but he's not going to give up, even though he's going to be considered loony. I mean, you've got to be kidding, Albert. Surrender, surrender, surrender. I will not surrender. So, this is Robert Cowley as he describes this. He says, Albert informed his division commanders that they should distribute staff officers among the fighting troops. They were to remain there during the battle, giving fresh inspiration up front instead of constantly grumbling in the rear. He took his staff officers, instead of them grumbling in the rear, he sticks them up in the front. He says, so that you can provide inspiration. To them so that you can be the cheery one saying we're going to win this that's literally how he he led he takes his grumblers in the back and sticks them in the front a french colonel named bricard reported the front is on the point of giving way on all sides it looks as though it will be impossible to avert catastrophe this is actually an extremely important moment in world war one most people don't recognize how important it is But if the Belgian line breaks in this situation, the Germans are going to control the coastline of Belgium and and northern France, and that actually leads to all sorts of other problems in the war. They're trying to turn the corner and catch the flank on the other side, and they can't seem to do it. Why? Because of these Belgians. I, I, there's no way that they're still standing, guys. Can you believe that after multiple months they're still fighting? They have hardly anyone left, but they have Albert. The decision to return a sizable portion of the Bel- of of Belgium to the sea, the watery equivalent of the scorched earth policy, was one that only Albert could make. He made it without hesitation. So there's this dike system that controls. This it's a very soggy territory, and the salt water of the channel is blocked off by these dikes. And someone comes to Albert and says, in the history past, these were used to actually create a flood of river which can create a barrier. Do it, says Albert. Albert is going to destroy his country. Salt water upon farmland is the worst possible thing you could ever do but it's actually going to change World War I. He has blown up his bridges, he has spent all of his military men, and now he's going to blow up the dikes and actually allow seawater into his country, and it's going to destroy that land for many, many years. I don't even know how long it's going to take to heal after this. He made that decision without hesitation. You see, we have a decision-making grid in our life, but it needs to be centered around our yeses. We need to know what God is desiring with our life. And when it comes down to our walk with God, we give a yes to God. If something ever asks us to compromise that relationship with God, our answer is no. Without hesitation, no. Albert style, You see, when it comes to our spousal relationships, our family relationships, the integrity of what we have in covenant bond with the body of Christ, if something ever comes and asks us to compromise those relationships, the answer is no, unhesitatingly no. You see, the way you make your decisions is not based on a price tag or comforts. It is based on a priority system of where your yeses land. If your yeses are landing based in comfort, if it's based in reputation and your desire to be liked, you will be purchased. The devil will discern that price tag and he will get you. However, you're no longer a Leopold. You're an Albert. And Albert seems to know what his value system is. He is just sort of one of these quiet, tall, lanky characters that is going to shock the world. No one knew this man had this in him. But one thing Albert knows is he knows what his value system is, and the way he is going to lead is deeply inspiring, I'm guessing, to every single one of us. It's like he himself is going to go to the front. He himself is going to be a fighting man. He himself is going to be in the trenches. His wife is going to be a nurse. A nurse. A queen is going to function as a nurse. There is something about that model of leadership that, to be honest, outside of Alfred the Great, I don't know that I've seen it. I mean, there are stories I share from World War II about Winston Churchill going in amongst the people, helping this lady out from under the rubble, and having tears in his eyes as he's helping his people through the Battle of Britain that are deeply inspiring to me. However, this is like a whole nother rung. This is someone whose very country is being invaded, and he is making, has to make decisions every day that have such weight upon them, but he knows. When he's asked by the French basically to make a decision for the allies as a whole or for Belgium, he's going to choose Belgium. I'm choosing Belgium. I have to stand for my homeland. I can't compromise my own people to preserve the French in this situation. Oh, I want to help you French, but right now I am under attack. I can't just wait. I must defend my homeland. Very interesting process this man has to go through. And I would say, as we, you're you're probably not making decisions at this level. Just a hunch. If any of you are, we should probably talk afterwards. I'd be very interested in talking, telling your story in one of these daily thunder episodes. This is a very, very heavy weight that very, very few people on Earth and throughout Earth's history have ever had to carry. And yet, in your little miniature version of it, you are called to the same life. The Germans or the enemy wants to come through your territory, and they want to use your bridges. They want to pass through Liège unharmed, and yet you've been given weapons of warfare that are mighty to say no. But to say no and to risk the hazards that come to your life because you say no is a tremendous challenge for the human, because comfort and ease is a draw card for us, but we must have a yes system. We must know why we are here. We we must know what is central to our life. And if anything ever asks us to violate that, the answer is no. Unhesitatingly, no. Everyone regards the Marne as the turning point of 1914. You don't know anything about that yet. You did not see that line. And of the First World War itself, indeed it was but it might have been only a temporary reverse if the germans had managed to breach another river barrier that of the isere you see if the germans get through this situation it changes the entire war however because of albert they don't because of albert's willingness to unhesitatingly say do it do what is necessary in this situation you ever put yourself in one of those situations where your life is on the line and the enemy, you know, is, is ready to kill you if you, but you can spare yourself if you, you know, sacrifice unto this, pay incense unto the gods or, you know, declare that, uh, you know, Caesar is Lord. There's all sorts of options throughout history that have been given. Deny Christ or die. And how are you going to handle that situation? You handle that situation by handling all the small situations in your life to say yes to what needs a yes and to say no to that which needs a no. That's how you prepare for that situation. You train your soul around the priority yes in every day, in every week, in every month. And so when you run into those situations, your soul is trained to put priority where priority is due. The inspirational hero of the Iser, the person who elected first to make a stand there with an army that had practically ceased to exist, and then to sacrifice part of his own country to the sea, was the Belgian king, Albert. Well, it sounds like a song needs to be sung uh, with that one. Father, there is a decision in our soul, and I pray that we would be like you in how we make our decisions. And Lord Jesus, that we would bring glory to you by preserving our yeses, by wielding loving no's. Lord, I pray that you would secure this dimension of our life and that there would be an unhesitating readiness. Even if it means blowing up the bridges in our life and even if it means blowing up the dikes to let the Izere flow. Lord, I ask that you would move in us by your grace to accomplish this it's in the precious name we pray amen daily thunder is a listener supported production of ellersley discipleship training at ellersley we are laboring to rouse the church of jesus christ out of its lethargy and build brave hearted christians for such a time as this daily thunder episodes are released every day monday through friday from our campus in windsor colorado and our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to Ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.